Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 28th podcast in our series on American history. I'm recording this podcast on February 23rd, the 76th anniversary of the famous flag raising in Iwo Jima by the six Marines, which was captured in an iconic photograph by Joe Rosenthal that has gone down in world history as being one of the most recognizable photographs ever captured by a journalist or any individual. And we take our hat off, hats off to the Marines and other American service personnel who captured that island in a battle that was only scheduled to take five days, but sadly took 36 days to the tune of tens of thousands of human lives. More about this can be read on my blog today that I posted in honor of this anniversary. In the prior podcast on number 27, we looked at the entire Lewis and Clark expedition during that podcast in terms of why they were sent out by President Jefferson, what they found, and what the outcome was. We also finished off our discussion on the Jefferson presidency by looking at the failed Embargo Act of 1807, and we also then discussed why what should have been a significant negative mark on Jefferson's presidency, why in fact he actually was able to rise above that. So all of that was discovered then. Today in our 28th podcast, our third president of the United States has gone off into retirement and we now have our fourth president that was elected in November of 1808, taking oath of office in 1809 on March 4th, that of course being James Madison. James Madison is will be prior to that was synonymous with the arguably the author of the United States Constitution. In his presidency, he will always be synonymous with the War of 1812. I can never remember what year that was, but that War of 1812. Anyhow, that is the war, of course, that Madison had started largely because of the failed attempts by the Jefferson and John Adams administration to get the European navies to quit harassing American merchant ships on the high seas. John Adams, as we know, started the Quasi War when diplomatic overtures failed. Jefferson tried a number of diplomatic overtures also which failed. He then tried that embargo act that we talked about on the last podcast to no avail. James Madison realized that we were gonna have to go for broke if we were going to eliminate the harassment of American merchant and naval vessels sailing in international waters. However, the time seemed ripe for Madison to embark on that. And part of the reason why Madison would actually start that war in a year in which he was going to run for reelection. 
future presidents will be smart enough to know that if you're going to bring the country into war as a sitting president, you might just want to wait until after you're elected for that second term, which is, of course, exactly what Woodrow Wilson did. He gets uh, swooped into office for a second time in November of 1916, takes the oath of office on March 4th of 1917, 32 days later, our American soldiers are heading off to fight in what would become known as World War I. Franklin Roosevelt would do the same thing after he was elected for an unprecedented third term. But James Madison wasn't nearly as concerned about his record or his ability for re-election as much as he thought that the time was perfect to be able to hit Europe where it was vulnerable by going after one of the most aggressive countries against American merchant ships, and that, of course, was England. The reason for that is because, as we know, when we're talking about the year, the 1810s, we are talking about a time in Europe when Napoleon Bonaparte is running around that chessboard of European countries claiming as much territory as he possibly can. Great Britain was preoccupied with Bonaparte. Therefore, Madison thought that this was the perfect time to end U.S. intimidation by foreign countries. Remember, as I discussed a couple of podcasts ago, that the cost factor of American impressment was significant, driving up insurance costs by over 500%, as well as creating a lot of unpredictability in the American economy as to finished products leaving our country and finished products coming in. It was negatively affecting our trade. So with a clear victory needed to end U.S. intimidation, and with Great Britain preoccupied with Napoleon Bonaparte and France on the continent of Europe, James Madison also recognized that the border to the north, Canada, was greatly exposed. So this is the reason why Madison struck when he did. However, unlike George Washington, who was fighting a Great Britain that was strung out and worn out during many of the years of the American Revolution, that was not the case with, with Great Britain in the 1810s. Yes, she was preoccupied with a continental war going on in Europe, but that isn't to say that she didn't have resources still available in North America. As a result, in our attempted attempt to invade Canada, which again was British-held territory, we failed to uh, seize any significant territory. Part of the reason is that unlike Madison, excuse me, unlike Washington, Madison was fighting where Great Britain was strong. There was no vulnerable jugular in which to seize. There was no soft underbelly that Washington was famous for finding that Madison was unable to see. As a result of this, by 1813, Great Britain had started sending more resources over here. However, she failed to be able to maintain her hold in Detroit and modern-day Michigan, as well as Lake Erie. Chief Tecumseh's death that Great Britain was allying with also eliminated any further Native American resistance to the Americans. So while we made, were attempting to make strides in 1813, that tide would turn one year later. The reason being is that in 1814, Napoleon was captured by the Europeans' allies who had allied together against France, and Napoleon was exiled off of continental Europe. That was done 
while James Madison was struggling to try to obtain another significant win for the American side. As a result, Great Britain could turn that massive military in the sense of our army and navy. Remember at this point, Great Britain is still the strongest army and navy in the world. She now could turn that full military attention and launch that directly at the United States, which of course is what she did. As we know, she began to blockade the entire East Coast, financially strangling the United States. She then sent her forces off of those massive warships right onto the shores of the Potomac and through into Washington, D.C., where the White House would be burned, the Capitol would be looted, had it not been for James Madison's wife, Dolly Madison, our original Declaration of Independence would truly have been lost. Whereas she ran out with that copy, or the original, excuse me, of the Declaration into one of the massive oak trees outside of the White House grounds, and she shoved it into a hole that she found. Later on, when asked, Mrs. Madison, where did you put that Declaration? She simply re re responded, in the oak tree. And of course, there were thousands still in the Potomac region. So when they asked her, Mrs. Madison, which oak tree, she had no clue. And that's what would launch one of the largest equivalent of Easter egg hunts there after the war was over, trying to figure out where this piece of parchment was. And admittedly, of course, it was found later on. However, please note, that Washington, D.C. was no real significant political, military, or economic gain for Great Britain. Rather, she raided it simply because she could. And it was that demoralizing effect on the United States that that raid happened. She also attempted to take Baltimore, Maryland, when, of course, that didn't happen, it was during this time that our national anthem would be written by Francis Scott Key, watching the way that America would burn despite the fact that, of course, as he wrote, our flag would still be there. But keep in mind, back in Europe, Napoleon might be exiled, but that doesn't mean that Great Britain was up for an overseas war once again, like she had to fight in the American Revolution. Great Britain had been fighting France for years now. Her treasury was nearly depleted. And an ongoing war with the Americans on American home soil was a military endeavor that Great Britain simply wasn't up for. As a result, James Madison sent a group of delegates, including the likes of John Quincy Adams, our future president of the United States, number six. He also sent Henry Clay, a man that would attempt to run for president several times and never quite have the ability to attain that office. And they would work on the American behalf to try to resolve the conflict in the Netherlands and what would eventually be written up as the Treaty of Ghent. This was signed on December 24th, 1814. Prior to that, James, Mad James Madison, President Madison, started to tell the American forces to stand down. Great Britain's forces were told the same thing. So the war started to wrap up and de-escalate as 1814 was coming to a close. On Christmas Eve, arguably one of the most famous Christmas Eves in American history, 
The War of 1812 would be drawn to a close with no war reparations from either side and no territory would be lost or gained. However, you might say, wait a minute, Chris, I thought I remember another battle still waging after that. Well, then you were paying attention in your American history classes in high school or college or your social studies in grammar school, because there was. It would be in the mouth of the Mississippi River in the city of New Orleans. That was land that was held by a, man, by a general by the name of Andrew Jackson. Jackson received word from President Madison, his commander-in-chief, to start wrapping things up to de-escalate the conflict. Jackson looked out into the Gulf of Mexico and saw the British Navy beginning to wrap things up. But the more that Jackson started to pack up and get the military back towards Washington, D.C., he noticed that the British Navy wasn't sailing away. What's more is that British naval ships were actually coming in to the mouth of the Mississippi River. If this war is supposed to be over, why does it look like the British are preparing for yet another battle? So that's one Andrew Jackson, we have no proof whether he read Sun Tzu's Art of War or not, but he definitely played that out to a T. As Sun Tzu famously wrote in his treatise, The Art of War in 500 BC, all warfare is based on deception. When you're near, you make it appear as though you're far away. When you're far away, you make it appear as though you're near. When you're actively using your forces, you make it look as though you're inactive. And when you're inactive, you make it appear as though you are active. You feign disorder within the enemy camp and you crush them. End quote. Sun Tzu. And General Andrew Jackson, future seventh president of the United States, followed that text to the letter. While the British could see the American forces appearing to stand down, pack up, and move away, all Andrew Jackson did was move his forces just out of sight. He continued to train his forces and prepare for a battle that he was convinced was going to happen. And it's exactly what did happen on January 5th, 1815. The British raided the New Orleans area and started uphill towards the land that Jackson, they thought, was gone and once occupied. Can you imagine the horror and confusion within the British forces as Andrew Jackson's sword and weapons came slicing down on the unsuspecting British Navy and Army, wiping them out largely with nothing left over? The battle was truly one of absolute violence. Jackson was known to behead British soldiers and give those heads back to the British forces. Jackson was absolutely appalled that a resolution to the war was in the making and they would try this underhanded deal to attempt to seize territory at the 11th hour. For the forces that were recognizing what Jackson had done, they thought that that would be end, the end to his military career, that he would be over as a military officer and politics would be the furthest thing from his mind. But the American people lauded Jackson. 
They looked at him as the second generation of protectors, along the likes of a General Washington, who they could trust to protect them. When the politicians thought a conflict was over and gone, Andrew Jackson saved the day. This is what would propel Jackson to the presidency, which we'll talk about in future podcasts. To wrap this conflict up, though, just to put the numbers into perspective, this is not a conflict, even though, again, according to the Treaty of Ghent, that no territory was lost or gained, no war reparations from either side. We mythically can believe, then, that the war largely had no cost to it, when, in fact, the exact opposite was true. Of the American soldiers that fought in the Great Lakes region in northern New York, as well as along the Potomac region and down in Louisiana, this was a conflict that engulfed the entire country. 2,260 Americans would be honored for their service wrapped in an American flag, never to go home again. At that time, the conflict also proved just how much more expensive military engagement would be costing. The entire American Revolution that raged for eight years cost $57 million. This conflict that was less than three years dwarfed that cost of the revolution to the tune of $90 million. Adjusting that to $2021, that was a conflict that cost the American people $1.5 billion. However, even though we did not gain any territory, remember again, we didn't lose any. That's partly what would propel James Madison to a second term, but would make the hero of his presidency, that being the Secretary of State James Monroe, to his rightful place as the next president of the United States to succeed Madison. James Monroe would come in as our fifth president of the United States with the election of 1816. He will be our last founding father to occupy the Oval Office. At this point, the founding fathers will be either gone on to, to meet their maker, or they would simply be too old to be able to occupy the office. Ironically enough, James, James Monroe will also be our third and through to 2021, our third president to die on July 4th. Ironically enough, once again, a third president dying on an anniversary of what is mythically believed to be the date that we signed our Declaration of Independence. So the question begs, if our founding fathers are gone after James Monroe leaves office, who will lead us going forward? More about that when I read that far in the textbook. All right, so with the incoming Monroe administration. What we're going to see now is in, in looking in retrospect will be an era of American nationalism. Now, when I said the word nationalism, some of you listening might have winced at that word. Some of you might have felt proud. The reason being is that nationalism is a loaded term. It's a term that has both negative as well as positive implications and interpretations depending upon your background and understanding of the term. But nevertheless, it is an important term. And it is what America needed at this time. To unpack this, simply put, 
nationalism is nothing more, and I'm, I'm putting this in layperson's terminology, but it's nothing more than pride in one's group of people that they called their fellows, whether it be fellow Frenchmen, fellow Englishmen, or fellow Americans. That's what nationalism is. By itself, it has no reason to have a negative interpretation. Nationalism is pride in one's country. George Washington begged the Americans to try a little bit of nationalism. If he could have somehow found this boxed up somewhere in a bottle, he would have done everything to jam it down Americans' throats because we were so wrapped up after the American Revolution and even after two terms of the Washington presidency. We were so wrapped up calling ourselves Virginians and North Carolinians and Pennsylvanians. Hey, what about Americans? Oh, yeah, we're that too. But that was a distant second. Washington warned us in what is still the shortest farewell address by any outgoing president of the United States. He literally begged the American people to come together as a country, make being an American first and your ties to your individual state, even a close second, but make it a second. You need to come through as Americans first because if you don't, some future European country is liable to look at our separation, our individual identities, and think that the time will be ripe to come and attack us. Isn't it ironic that Washington's prediction sadly came true? Great Britain thought that America would be easy to reconquer. Even though Madison started the war, Great Britain thought it would be an easy sweep and reclaim some of the territory that she lost with the Treaty of Paris in 1783, resolving the American Revolution. Washington's prediction, again, sadly came true. It wouldn't be until the War of 1812 that we came together to truly call ourselves Americans. So again, at this time in the 1810s, nationalism is not a negative thing. Fast forwarding a couple of centuries, how and why then does nationalism get that negative interpretation? It's when we take pride in our country too far. If we as Americans, and I understand again, I have listeners around the world, so I'm not again even remotely trying to pretend that this only applies to Americans, but regardless of where you're listening and what country, pride in the country that you're born into or are currently living there's nothing wrong with in your mind thinking that this is the best country on earth. I would hope you feel that way, again, regardless of what country you're in. But where nationalism begins to take a deadly negative turn is when we want to have pride in our country and say it's number one, but then when somebody from another country doesn't agree with us and we want to go to war with them because of that, or worse, kill everybody that disagrees with us. That's taking nationalism way too far. So again, part of the reason why, as I say, that that would take a negative implication later on. Right now, with the results of the War of 1812, America's feeling good about itself. Yes, we won that American Revolution, but now we were able to fight a European country once again. 
how ironic that it happens to be the same one we fought before, but we were still able to survive and live another day and wake up the following morning after the treaty was signed and be able to call ourselves Americans with our own territory still intact. So now with James Monroe coming in as the fifth president of the United States, ironically enough, Madison's prediction came true. Despite the fact that it was an unpopular war while it was going on, the fact that America decided to try to kick that massive giant called Great Britain right in the rear, which, of course, we weren't even big enough to do so. A political cartoon showed of the time showed James Madison trying to kick Great Britain in the rear, but militarily, we didn't have the legs to stand on it. And all we see in that cartoon is a tiny James Madison kicking the massive giant Great Britain and James Madison as president is doing all he can to kick Great Britain as hard as he can. And the only place that we're kicking Britain is in the heel of one of her boots. It's kind of a pictorial way of the image of showing just how large Great Britain was. But France, Portugal, Spain definitely noted that America was willing to fight. As a result, naval impressment went down by the wayside at least for the time being. It is because of that that President Madison would now turn his attention, ironically enough, to the country that we were once fighting. He put an overture to, the, to Parliament and to the King of Great Britain, which at this point, as we know, is going to be the incoming Queen Victoria, where she and the President of the United States will work on establishing better British-United States relations. With the help of a couple of famous senators, the Great Lakes would agreed upon by both countries to be demilitarized. We also established, President Monroe established the Anglo-American Accord, establishing land and settlement rights along not only the Great Lakes, but the Mississippi Valley as well. Between our relations improving with Great Britain, James Monroe also would turn his attention to France and Spain and attempt to try again to secure as many established rights as possible so that the countries could exist peacefully still on the North American continent. So this is part of the reason why James Monroe is considered one of the near great presidents is not only because of this, but it's also because of something that he does in the twilight of his presidency, just as he is about to retire. He passes what will become known as the Monroe Doctrine. It will be the first, but sadly not the last, and I say sadly only because of the aims of what the doctrine is intended to do, but it's a doctrine or a, a statement, a mandate coming out of the sitting president's office of a legacy that he wants to leave on his presidency. And future presidents will have their own form of doctrines. For James Monroe, the doctrine passed on December 2nd, 1823, stated, number one, that no further European colonization would be allowed anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. That not only applies to North America, but also Central and South America. Secondly, the United States will not intervene in any European affairs. So, if you have the opportunity, and please don't try to do this if you're driving and listening to this or running on a treadmill or a stationary bike, but if you have the opportunity to take a map out, you can pause the podcast here. 
But what I'd like you to do or imagine as I describe this, that this is the president of the United States. So point to the United States on the world map. This is a mandate, a doctrine that he is stating to European powers. So you're going to take your finger and you're going to go to the right on your map to the continent of Europe. And this is a president saying to those European countries, you are no longer welcome here in the Americas. Where you are already flying your flag, you, of course, are free to continue to do so. But Spain, the moment you pull out of one of your colonies, France, Great Britain, Portugal, you're not going to rush in to take its place. America will defend that country for its independence. However, as a bone to the Europeans, should you, France, go back to war with Great Britain or Spain, or Spain goes to war with Portugal, etc., you do not have to worry about American intervention. So again, this is, point to that map, the United States making a statement to the European powers about what they can and cannot do here in the Americas. So I ask you, looking at that world map, is anybody's input missing? Is anybody's participation in this doctrine glaringly silent or missing? It's America dictating to Europe what it can and cannot do. Mind you, we don't even live up to our end of the bargain as we're going to get involved in a number of European conflicts. If you're asking, my gosh, which one, continue to listen to these podcasts and you're going to find out the number of times that America goes over there and voids the Monroe Doctrine. But glaringly, what's missing is the input of Central and South American indigenous peoples and their former governments. We're not asking them. James Monroe never sent a group of diplomats to these countries to be able to say, hey, this is a statement that our, your neighbor to the north would like to make to the European mother countries. How do you feel about this? Give me a thumbs up, give me a thumbs down, anything like that. No, we don't. To a certain extent on the surface, while it may seem that what James Monroe was doing is benevolent, if not truly a man that should be commended, when you look below the surface, though, and you look between the lines, James Monroe was largely not acting any differently than the European countries were. He's not giving them the opportunity to have a say or to stand up for themselves. As a result, this is part of the reason what is going to be beginning to start adding to the tension that America will feel in our own backyard. And speaking of tension, I think I've been missing something. That massive elephant in the living room called slavery, which is what we'll begin with talking about in the next podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.